From Homeless to Hopkins, a medical doctor's inspiring journey. In this interview, we speak with Dr. Christopher Smith, a board-certified physician who has completed his residency and fellowship at Johns Hopkins Hospital. However, Dr. Smith's journey to success was not an easy one. As a homeless teenager, he faced incredible hardship, often waking up feeling broken, cold, sad, and hungry. Despite these challenges, Dr. Smith persevered, finding hope and eventually a better life. He shares an inspiring story of going from sleeping in a car to becoming a medical doctor at one of the most respected hospitals in the world. Dr. Smith is now dedicated to raising awareness of homeless children and finding solutions to help them overcome. Join us as we discuss his journey, his work, and his passions. Welcome to the Wellness Driven Life Show, where you're about to go on a wellness-driven ride. Welcome to Candy Apple Advocacy, the podcast for parents who want to advocate for their children's education. I'm Jim Mallard, and I'm here with my wife, Tabby. We've been through the trenches of raising kids in the school system and know how tough it can be, but we also know how essential it is to advocate for your child and their education. That's why we started this podcast, to share our experiences and insights with other parents to help them become more effective advocates for their children. On this podcast, we'll talk about everything from general education, general school advice, the school choices you have available to you, different education styles, individualized education plans, 504s, and all those key terms that you've heard but don't know what they are. We'll talk to experts. We'll also talk to parents and hear their stories. We'll share our stories with you and give you tools you need to be a strong advocate for your child and yourself. Whether you're a new parent, or have been in the game for a while, we invite you to join our community. Let's advocate together. Let me introduce our incredibly inspiring guest today. Dr. Christopher Smith is a board-certified practicing physician who completed his residency and fellowship at the world-renowned Johns Hopkins Hospital. Dr. Smith lives in Florida and partners with Quantum Imaging and Therapeutics. He dedicates his time and resources to raising awareness of homelessness, homeless children, and finding solutions to help them overcome. Chris enjoys making new memories with his family, walking barefoot on the beach, traveling, and photography. Please help me welcome Dr. Christopher Smith. Hi, April. Thank you for having me on the show. My pleasure. It's a huge pleasure to have you on the Wellness Driven Life Show. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. I'm very excited to talk about wellness and talk about my journey as well. So, 
Yes, this is very exciting and inspiring. So let's start out by letting the audience know a little bit about you. Okay, so I'm a physician, as you stated. I did my residency and fellowship at Johns Hopkins in uh, Baltimore and actually stayed on as faculty for several years afterwards. I've since have gone into private practice. And my journey to that area was to that hospital was a little unusual for everybody for, compared to everybody. So I uh, grew up in poverty and homelessness, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. And I put myself through college and medical school, and I was blessed to be able to go to Johns Hopkins. And since then, I actually decided to write a book about my journey to share with people, to inspire others, to help them overcome their own obstacles, to face their own challenges, and to heal, to learn to heal from their emotional scars. And, and yeah, that would absolutely bring a ton of emotional scars, more so than than the average American, although I don't know the stats, so that's not really fair to say yet. Um uh, but you, yeah, your experiences, I, I know definitely statistically, people do not come through that to go to the places that you are. And, you know, you could almost say this is, this is a, a historical aspect of some of the things that you have done, the things that you have accomplished. And now you're sharing that with not only adults, but children. And you are speaking on this as well. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. So I speak at uh, often on fundraisers to raise money for homelessness or also youth groups to kind of talk to them and to you know, inspire them to overcome their challenges, things like that. Yes. Okay. So let's start from more of a beginning. Um, I've researched a little bit about you, but for those of you who don't know, let's take them a little bit on a journey, shall we? Let's go to childhood. What was it like growing up from a young age? I know you had many siblings. Would you mind sharing that experience? Absolutely. And by the way, April, feel free to refer to me as Chris. I prefer uh, Chris and, and, you know, just I, my, my professional name is Dr. Smith, but feel free to call me Chris. So we have, you know, kind of that dynamic. Um, so growing up, I was the sixth of 11 children. I grew up in a large family. I was born in mm -hmm. Utah. Um, my parents, most of my early memories were okay. But then about four or so, my father lost his job at the local steel mill. And then after that, it was a struggle uh, from that time on until the time I left home with a lot of poverty and a lot of difficult circumstances. Um, so we often would be evicted. We'd, so we'd be in a house. We'd be there for three months or so. We'd be evicted. My father struggled to maintain employment. My mother struggled with mental health issues. And because of that, it became a very difficult dynamic. There were many, many times growing up where we lived without basic basic utilities like electricity or gas for months, not just short term, but months at a time. And so with that, we would actually learn to uh, heat our water up over a fireplace and we'd share bath water. So you always want to be the first person in the bath because it was the cleanest. And mm -hmm. we also learned to cook over the fire. So we'd cook like hot dogs or whatever we could cook. And um, so that's when I started to love ketchup because, you know, I always put ketchup on anything and it makes it taste okay. So, um, but that was my life growing up. So, and then a lot of time I also slept in areas that weren't really designed for sleeping, such as a carport or a garage and without, without adequate heating. So, for example, some one times it got so cold that my brother's fish tank, he had a fish tank actually froze because wow. it was so cold where we were sleeping. Oh, wow. Oh, so a few things I take out of this. You became a very innovative 
being because you had to creatively find ideas to on how to cook, you know, rushing to do things first and how to utilize water and all of the things that you had around you. Sometimes, Chris, I wonder if when we're put into these difficult situations, it helps guide us in so many things in life, you know, and on how to think in different ways. You know, it just propels us into a growth mindset uh, spiritually if we allow it. Absolutely. And I think having that growth mindset is key to overcoming these difficulties. Um, I, I learned to develop backup plans for the backup plans as a kid, you know, because yeah. I, there was always this instability. And so I always, so even now today, I always have a backup for the backup, whatever, you know, goes wrong. Yeah. It's just an innate nature now in me. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I would say so. And um, so when I, when I think about a childhood like this, I think of how difficult it would be to really feel secure. Is there a time that you can recall where you first really felt safe and secure? Um, at home? No, I never really felt secure like ever. Um, but but I did feel secure in certain areas, school and libraries. School mm. and libraries were my safe space, my security. Yeah. So even when I was a senior in high school, so my senior year of high school was actually probably my worst year. I slept in a car the entire year of my senior year of high school. But school was always my safe space because school never went anywhere. It always had electricity and there was always food. It was always warm. And so school was, and I loved, I loved to learn. I always loved to learn. So I'd go to the library and read these stories of, amazing people that overcame obstacles you know like yeah. abraham lincoln or whomever these and so these inspired me so that was the only i felt secure in school and kind of learning that was my only area of security that i had yeah absolutely and when we you know security can be a couple of different things it doesn't necessarily mean the physical right i mean when we talk about victor frankel's book and all of the things that he experienced i'm sure you've read that and it, it, it's so much of that mental escape. I mean, we get to escape into books, into totally different worlds, and you can find comfort and solace within those worlds. And I, I don't disagree with you. That's exactly where my mind went is if I were in that situation, I would feel that security in a library or in a school. So 100%. How did this how did it end up for your siblings? You had so many siblings. So what are, what is that relationship like today with your siblings? So my siblings, our relationship today is um, somewhat fractured because my mother struggled with um, some mental health issues such as like bipolar. I think she, you know, I, they're not really diagnosed, but basically she's created a lot of division and dis, uh, dysfunction in my family. Mm. But We've recently started actually to sit down and talk. Since I wrote my book, my older siblings and I have actually sat down and talked now. And it's the first time in 30, 40 years we've talked about our lives growing up. And for them, it was actually very, very therapeutic to sit down and say, you know, to kind of talk about it. So we're starting to mend those relationships now and kind of to learn to heal, to overcome by sharing and actually um, working through those experiences, those emotions of, you know, the past. Because Typically, what all of us did is we all intellectualize it. So we locked, we boxed up our emotions, put it away for 20, 30 years, mm -hmm. and then in deal that we focus on intellectual school. 
but those emotions are still there. They don't go away. And eventually you have to face them and work through them. And you look back and you realize that your past actually had a purpose and the pain of the past becomes less painful when you realize there was a purpose, some purpose that you went through that. Yeah. And it it takes a lot to get there, doesn't it? Like you said, you know, you're going through, you know, over 20, over 30 years, sometimes for people, a lifetime, unfortunately, to really, you know, understand that and, and get to that point. And it takes a lot of work. It's harder to do that work than it is to not. <laughs> I'm sure you exactly. would agree. It's harder to do it, but your end result is better if you work through it. See, I like to think about it as wounds and scars. See, in medicine, we often see wounds, people get injuries or whatever, and they develop scars. The same thing emotionally, we get those deep emotion wounds, the deepest ones that kind of fracture us, that, you know, kind of destroy us and break us. We don't want to face those. We don't want to face those, those experiences, those difficulties. But once we do and we work through it and you realize it happened, it wasn't very fun, but it's in the past. It's part of me. It made me who I am today. But I can accept that it happened and let it go and then give it. I like to say, give it away or give it to God, you know, to God or to whomever, give it to whomever you can share with and let them carry it. And then it becomes like a strength, like a scar, almost like a a badge. Like you can share with others, say, you know, this is what I went through. And and because of this, you can make it through yours and overcome your difficulties. Yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent. And I, I love Chris that you shared that you and your siblings are working it out and that you're starting to heal and share stories. And so much of healing, I believe, is through connection. And when we start talking connection, I believe that that was a lot, like this huge aspect of your healing process. You met your your lover at a young age, didn't you? And, And so that kind of helped propel you where you're feeling a love that you maybe didn't experience before. Yes, absolutely. So I met my wife uh, in college where I was 21. She was um, 19. So, but when I met her, I felt like I had someone who unconditionally loved me mm-hmm. and I felt complete before that. I kind of felt broken or empty, but once I met her, there was this feeling that I wasn't alone, that I had somebody with me that I could share that emotional connection. And you're right about the connection. Um, when you go through experiences like that, I think you often kind of downplay your emotions because you don't know how to deal with them. Yeah. But part of developing that connection, again, is working through those emotions and be able to feel them and be like, you know, being able to feel your emotions again. You know, it's OK to cry. You know, it's OK to be sad. It's OK to, you know, be upset. But when I met my wife, I, she's very intuitive, like uh, with emotions. She's very good with emotions and feelings. And she really helped me to be able to understand those emotions and be able to have that connection to have that connection with someone who loves you and just accepts you for who you are. It's when we were dating, when we were dating, I used to have to walk to a, a pay phone because my parents didn't have a phone. I, I so they have a phone. So I'd walk to a pay phone and I call her. I have to make my uh, conversations really short because it was only like, yeah, but 75 cents. And that was back in the day when you had quarters mm-hmm. in and um, I'd have like two minutes to talk and she'd w- always wonder why I cut it off. But eventually I told her I didn't have a phone. And she was like, well, that's okay. I'll just come visit you more often, you know? So she was totally okay with that. You know, it was just, she accepted me for who I was. 
Yeah, she allowed that. And it turned out even better because she's like, I'll just come see you <laughs> instead yeah, exactly. of talk. But wasn't it kind of nice, though, in a, in a strange way when you had to use a payphone that you were more intentional on what you said because you didn't have as long to talk? Oh, absolutely. I had to make sure it was very, very pointed, very, I knew exactly direct what I want to say, didn't waste time. Yeah, yeah. So that that's wonderful that you you felt this connection that you hadn't before and that unconditional love aspect. And I think so much of, you know, just being human is is evolved around love. And when we find that with however way we do, it really opens us up into experiencing life in a whole new way. Yes, absolutely. Once you have that love, you can experience life kind of a fullness, a wellness, a more balanced life. Yeah. Because, because without, it, I think it's difficult to achieve that kind of that wellness, the, the balance. It, it is definitely. And so I want to go back a little bit because you talked about how um, children understand things a little bit differently and you, they don't know how to process emotions. Just like you said, when I was younger, I didn't know how to, you know, say what I was feeling. I, I stuffed everything down. I didn't know that it was okay to be open and to cry even, especially males, you know, in our society, we have this fixed standard of, you know, thinking that we're supposed to be a certain way and it's just yeah. not so. And I, and I think that we're turning that around as we start talking about it more and more, which is a beautiful thing. Uh, but I just wanted to bring that to light because you not only wrote a book for adults, but you wrote a book for children. Did you happen to include aspects of that? Absolutely. I did. I did include them because that's what I, I basically parts of the book are like a conversation like, you know, you're struggling right now, but that's OK. We all struggle, you know, and kind of the idea that if you go for help, you need help, you know, to seek out help. One of the things that I did not do as a kid and one thing kids that are homeless, they're always afraid. You always have this fear that you're going to um, be taken away from your family or put in the foster system. Um, yeah. And your parents kind of perpetuate, well, at least my parents did, they kind of perpetuate that fear as well. And so you don't tell anybody about your situation. But in reality, those kids should reach out to somebody for help, you know, a, a trusted friend or a yeah. social worker or a teacher or a lot, whoever, law enforcement, whoever, somebody to help them out because. There are so many resources now for families to help those kids and, and it would really help them. So, and that's yeah. part of my book is encouraging them to kind of seek out help and talk to their parents, you know, if they're struggling. Cause I never shared my feelings. I just would bottle it up and it became so difficult for me as a 12 year old, I almost took my own life. And so, um, I, and so, because I was so depressed, I didn't know how to deal with these emotions. Mm -hmm. And when I was in that situation, I realized that, that there is no shortcut in life that you just have to go through it. There is no way around it. And, yeah. and at that time I, I felt like someday I would have a better life. And it's true. I did, you know, I, I, my life is wonderful. Now I walk on the beach, you know, in and out with my wife. So, I mean, there's yeah. nothing better. So, you know, uh, the saying, what if it turns out better than you ever could have imagined is, is such a great saying. I like, I like to, to push that out as often as I can. And I think you even left that in a description or as a inscript for your book. But just like you said, 
my life is better than I imagined. And, and that's just how it is. And you have to just go through it and experience all of the things. I'm going to bring in a couple of the comments. Um, so, uh, Manley says, agreed. Johns Hopkins has a 9.2 acceptance rate. Um, I think this was from earlier, but yeah, jumping so, into. Yeah, but, so, so when I actually applied for my specific residency, it was actually less than a 1% chance. Um, wow. There were 800 applicants for like uh, six positions, basically. So in my particular specialty, it was less than a 1% chance. And so I like to look back and I think that there's no way I did that. Statistically, the odds are so far against me. Everybody in my class went to some Ivy League school and then there was me who didn't. And so um, and my life growing up was way different than all of my um, colleagues. And so I like to think there was some, if you want to say like divine influence or something, some yeah. plan that worked out. So if we were to say that, if there was a divine influence, do you feel like the bigger message and impact that you would have in the world has is happening now or has happened? I think it is. I think because of what I went through, I can now share and I'm okay sharing my story and being vulnerable. That was one thing mm -hmm. that actually was really hard yeah. for me over 20 years to learn to be vulnerable and to share my story. Cause I was always afraid that I'd be judged or misjudged by it. And yeah. um, learning to be vulnerable and share, I realized that as I started to share that, people I could help people out by doing that you know just helping them to work through whatever they're going through the high the lows you know those lows you have to experience the lows to have the highs you know without it there's just a flat line so you have to go lows and highs and so now I'm able to think I share and help people and put a different perspective because our perception of homelessness is often much different than reality the thing we don't realize is 30 percent of the people that are homeless are actually living families so kids and wow. every day 30%? in the U.S., 30 percent. And it's a... kind of a hidden. It's a lot of people. And it's a hidden number. It's a hidden homelessness. And usually in, in a day, every single day in the U.S., it's about 150,000 people that mm. are homeless in families. And so it's a huge number. Yeah. And, and the more I share about this, I find out I've had so many people who say, you know, I had a life like that growing up or similar life or and, and it's like. And they realize, and they's like, I can't wait to read your book, or thank you for sharing your book. It really helped me to work through those those circumstances I went through. Yeah, absolutely. I think I I think you're right. When you start going out and sharing and being vulnerable, it's one of the hardest things. And I think we all feel that way. We we all feel like, oh, we're gonna be judged or they're gonna think this because of this. And I just don't wanna deal with that you know? Yeah. And at the same time, when we start doing that, it impacts and affects so many people beyond what we thought what it was going to be. And I have had similar experiences. So I understand. And I've heard so many people, so many guests that I've had on the show that open up to that. And they say, when I became vulnerable and started sharing my story, it was amazing all of the people who said it affected their lives or even changed their lives or, you know, stopped someone from committing suicide. Yeah. And just, and, and we realize 
the thing is life is life is difficult for everyone that's the thing is you know it doesn't discriminate everybody has our own we have our own challenges they're different for people different things different challenges we all have challenges and i think as the more we share and connect with others saying you know this is what i'm struggling with and we can help to lift and work through things together we're more of almost like a brothers and sisters in the world not just antagonistic in the world yes absolutely um had another comment what was your sat score i took the act score was my act score was 31 ACT. which is yeah so in, in utah we took the act instead of the sat but my act was 31 um so if well you know when we're gonna we'll go into our first commercial but when we get back i would love to hear more about how you did it and i'm sure everyone else wants to know too Stay tuned when we come back. Ever heard of stoicism? Chances are, if you have, you've heard of stoicism with a lowercase s and not stoicism with an uppercase s. Lone wolves, no emotions, antisocial behavior, cold, indifference, all that is stoicism with a lowercase s. Stoicism with an uppercase s is the ancient Greek philosophy and virtue ethics framework that centers on service to the cosmopolis to include your family, friends, community, and planet, and the development of a good moral character. My name is Tanner Campbell, and I'm the host of Practical Stoicism, a three times a week podcast teaching Stoic principles and concepts to anyone interested through the exploration of texts and deep dives into various moral topics. You can find Practical Stoicism where you're already listening to podcasts by searching for Practical Stoicism or by going to stoicismpod.com. I invite you to give it a listen today. You just might like it. Hello, everyone. I am Kim Jacobs, the host of The Kim Jacobs Show, and you all know who's right here with me, Dr. Les Brown. How are you, Dr. Brown? I'm blessed and highly favored. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the time you want to give yourself a competitive edge. If you got a message, you have some knowledge or experience, a story, or if you want to do something adventurous and exciting with your life that can increase your credibility, expose you to millions of people, I am encouraging you to have your own talk show. I used to have a talk show. That one talk show catapulted me to another level. Now there are more people watching the internet, as you are aware, than television. Come on, somebody. That's right. Dr. Kim Jacobs, she trained people on how to have their own talk show. She will train you how to do that. And now with me working, partnering with her, now you have the combination of an audience, expansive audience. We have over 4 million people in all of our platforms and the coaching you need to grow your business, to grow your multi-level marketing organization, to draw more attention to yourself in this noisy economy. Go ahead, Kim. So in the training that I do, Les, I actually do a six-week training. It's one hour per week. And each week I meet with the individuals one-on-one, We go through and we talk about all of the things that's necessary for a show to become a reality. We go from how to actually identify your focus area, what's going to be your ideal customer that's going to be tuning in. We'll talk about how to get guests, how to get sponsorship, 
how to go about getting your lighting, your branding and your banners and everything that you need to know. And guess what, Les? They right. own their own content at the end of the day. And that's exciting. Now, if you're ready to, to, to create a shift in your business and in your life and increase your cash flow, I want you to go to KimJacobsConsulting.com. It's right there on the screen. KimJacobsConsulting.com. You know, people say opportunity knocks on every door. Right. No. Opportunity stands by silently waiting for you to recognize it. So I want you to recognize that this is a time for you. This is an incredible time to have your own talk show. It establishes a level of credibility. Yes. And by being exposed to people on a regular basis, it allows you to strategically begin to impact and attract your audience. She can take you in a place in yourself that you can't go by yourself. So go to Kim Jacobs consulting.com. That's Kim Jacobs consulting.com. Did I say Kim Jacobs consulting.com? Yes, you did. Very good. Make sure you go there and sign up for the coaching. And we're looking forward to working with you. You have something special. You have greatness within you. That's my story. And that's Kim's story. And we're sticking to it. Bye for now. Bye. -bye. All right. Welcome back. So back to you, Chris, I would love to know, and I'm sure the audience would about how did you do it? So you come from such a, you know, these, these hard, hard times, I mean, struggles where to me, I mean, man, I don't even know if I'd want to get up and keep going. And you said you even struggled so much when you were 12 that you almost considered committing suicide. And you can talk about that if you'd like, but just curious, how, how did you go from there to really, was there a point when you were like, I, I gotta change. I gotta get somewhere high. Yeah. So thank you. So, so growing up, I used to actually, just so you know, I don't know if I didn't say this, but out of my family, the 10 of us, six of us actually went on and earned doctorate degrees. Um, wow. so what? So, um, did you guys run into to somebody that was just really influential and was like, you guys can do this? And, you know, yeah. How did that happen? Amazing. So I think a couple of things. So one thing about my father, he struggled to maintain my plan. My father was a dreamer. He was always kind of an inventor. But mm -hmm. one of the things my father always did is he always encouraged us to try, to try to just do something. And, you know, like try a sport. He always coached us in sports and things just to try. And it's okay if you fail. It's just the important thing is just try. And so... Growing up, I always just tried, and school was, well, like I said, my safe space, but I was also gifted in school, thankfully, and I had teachers who really helped me along, so teachers are kind of my superheroes to me, yeah. so <laughs> they affect so many lives, they don't realize it, you know, some of these teachers, and so in fifth grade, my teacher told me I'd become a doctor, I don't know what she, she told me that, and I took it in, and I believed it, and took it forward. But then in 11th grade, so in 11th grade, you asked about changing. So in 11th grade, I was in my AP history class and I decided I was just done with school. I was just done, not going to school anymore. Um, typical teenage, you know, my yeah. rebellion was I stopped turning my homework. You know, that's kind of a sad rebellion, but that's what my rebellion was. Anyway, so I decided I was done with school. My teacher, Mrs. Thompson, she noticed that I, that my grades just started to plummet. And she pulled me aside one day and said, after class said, Chris, what's going on? You know, this is not like you. And 
And I just, as a teenager, just said, I was like, made up some excuse that I didn't get the information. It was too hard or whatever. And so she just, she was the English teacher, history teacher. She had those still rimmed glasses, you know, that no nonsense kind of look. She kind of looked over her glass and said, Chris, you are so full of it. That is such, you know, that you are not, that is such a lie, you know? And she said, the person you will disappoint is you. You will disappoint yourself someday. You have so much potential and you can do better. And that just really kind of woke me up. And I said, you know, she's right. I need to do well in school. I need to do this in school because it's my only chance. School was really my only chance. And so yeah. after that in high school, I really worked hard and I actually ended up graduating fourth in my class. And the interesting was I had this mix. You, you talked about getting up in the morning. So when I was a senior in high school, my bedroom was a car. I slept in a car all most of the year, even in the winter. And sometimes it was so cold, my hair went back when I had hair, you know, my hair would actually freeze to the door or freeze. It was so cold because it was Utah in the winter, which is below freezing. Yeah. And, and, but then, so at night I didn't have anything to do. I didn't have a cell phone, didn't have video games, you know, I would just look at the stars and I would just look at the stars and kind of just talk to myself. And I would talk to, you know, talk to God or talk to whomever just to, kind of say, you know, what am I, and I, at that time, I decided I was going to work as hard as I needed to, to make my life better, so that my children's lives were not like mine, that they could have some hopeful life, so that year, I still participated in student government, I was actually in the senior council, or a senior class, whatever, um, and I did AP classes, and I played sports, but my home was still in a car, so I'd wait, I'd sleep in a car, go to school, and I had this extremely uh, tiresome facade I was trying to keep because I didn't want to let anybody know that that was my life. And right. so it was extremely that pride factor of I'm not, nobody's going to know this is how I'm doing. Cause I, my, yeah. my head went, well, did you have friends whose parents wanted to take you in and, you know, or, or if the school knew, you know, maybe they could push you into some resources. Were there resources? Did you even know? Or, like you said, maybe it's that pride factor where nobody, I, I can't show this side of me. Yeah, I didn't, I only had a couple of friends who knew. That was it. literally nobody else knew. And I just, I was trying to maintain as a teenager, you know, you were insecure anyway about your, what's going on. But yeah. to be, have people see you as being a homeless, poor kid sleeping in a car was like, especially back then, it was completely foreign to anything, you know, anybody gone through. And so, mm. But the cool thing is now I actually talk to my friends. I still in contact with some of them. They're like, why didn't you tell us? I had a, you could have came and stayed with me, you know, <laughs> you know, it's unfortunate. But so the yeah. biggest thing I did was I didn't quit. You know, I had times that I, if you asked how I did it, so I had times when I failed. So after I graduated high school, I got a, a, a four-year scholarship at the University of Utah. But then by the end of that year, my freshman year, I was still working. I worked full-time and did full-time classes, like 18 credits a semester. And I ended up losing my scholarship to maintain it. I had to maintain a 3.5 GPA. I ended up with a 3.45. So 0 0.05, I lost my scholarship. Oh. So just very, very minimal. So um, after that, I kind of briefly gave up. You know, I just kind of tried to self-medicate a little bit, some alcohol and things like that. But then one day I woke up and realized that was not how I wanted to be. That mm. was not the life I wanted. I wanted something different. So actually what I did is I went and served a religious mission in the uh, inner cities of Southern California, Spanish speaking. So I was down in the really rough neighborhoods in Southern California. I saw two drive-by shootings, you know, saw really rough, rough yeah. stuff. 
and we worked with kids and gangs and talked with them and stuff. And so, but what that did is that changed my mindset in the entire world because what happened is those Latino population were so kind and caring and just so giving. They mm. um, would share their resources, give us food, share anything they had with us. And it changed my mindset from being a victim to a growth mindset that the world was good, that there were good people in the world. That, because before that, I'd been raised that the world was out to get you, that everybody was willing to yeah. manipulate you or use you. But after that, I realized the world's a beautiful place. There are wonderful people. And that completely changed my whole attitude and mindset and everything. Just yeah. what happened is I, I stepped looking inside and started looking outside, looking how to serve others and help others rather than focus on my situation. And that changed my whole perception. Mm. And then after that, I got back and I met my wife and, and we, you know, after that, you know, went to college. So the, the short story is after that, I graduated, I went back, I graduated college in high honors. I paid for myself with grants and uh, working. And so I did in two year, two and a half years, I, I finished college high honors, applied to the University of Utah Medical School, got in, graduated with high honors from medical school and, ended up at Johns Hopkins, like I said, like less than a 1% chance. So that's the really, really brief story. And that was just, that was the, the first time, one time entry into it? Into? Into the Johns Hopkins, I can't even see it. <laughs> so, so yeah, so when I went into Hopkins, so um, like I said, so residency is very, so when you finish medical school work, so you have to do a residency training afterwards, which is anywhere from three years to seven years, depending on what you do. Yeah. And so mine was six years and it's very competitive based on the specialty that you do. Certain specialties are more competitive and of course certain institutions. So competitive institution and competitive specialties make a very difficult chance to get in. So I interviewed at Johns Hopkins. I actually applied. Honestly, the thing is I applied honestly as a um, shooting for the stars thought and like the chance and my actual thought was there was no chance on earth that I will ever ever get in there right and so I interviewed there with a guy named Dr. Stanley Siegelman and he was just amazing and somehow he saw something in me and said and accepted me and like I said when I went there I just felt like I wanted to be there like this was a place and the people at Hopkins are just very hardworking, kind physicians and they're just extremely intelligent but they're not there's this idea of like a can do attitude at Hopkins. Like if they don't know the solution, they'll be like, we're going to figure it out somehow and do it. Yeah. Yeah, And that's Hopkins. Ah, that's cool. So, and how long was was the residency? Remind me. So my residency, my residency was five years plus I did a year fellowship. So total six. Okay. Yeah. Well, I love that story of, of when you were in California and learning what community was and when people came together and were helping one another and you didn't come from that, you didn't experience that. And what a change in perception. I'm a huge advocate for travel and for experiencing other cultures because they're all a little different, aren't they? And, they are. and how they view things and what they do and what matters and if family and community matters and how that really shapes, you know, a, a human being. Yeah. And it was amazing. Just some of the people that were just so kind, like I remember in a neighborhood, we were walking neighborhood and a police officer pulled up. We're like, okay, what did we do wrong? Right. And he's <laughs> like, Hey, come over here. But he's like, do you guys realize where you are? Cause you know, we were too, you know, mm-hmm. we're completely out of 
fish, you know, fish out of the water. And it's like, this is a really, really bad neighborhood. I don't come in here unless I have a bulletproof vest on and stuff. And so we're like, thank you. Yes. Thank you for looking out for us, but we're okay. You know, and the, the amazing thing about the um, population down there is they still respect religion, you know, even the really, you know, yeah. gangs or stuff like that, because they're a lot more Catholic. And so they still respect religion and they left, you know, they actually were great to talk to. We'd have lots of discussion with, you know, these gang members and just talk to them. They're just, they're kids that get messed, you know, they get mixed up in some bad situation, but a lot of them actually have pretty good hearts, you know, down deep. So. Right. Yeah. And I'm sure, you know, you got to the, the comparison that you were able to see with the way that you grew up and the way that these kids are growing up and, you know, being able to be a light in somebody's life. And so, Tell me a little bit more. Let's move into your relationship with your wife and your family now. Okay. So, so my wife, so one of the things I talked about, my wife had some medical problems after we were married. And when our first baby was born, my wife was pregnant with her. She had some complications, she had kidney stones on top of uh, being pregnant. And oh. she actually went, went to labor and actually had to be passed in a kidney stone while she was in labor. And it's just a really bad combination. And so, yeah, uh, you know, so okay. anyway, after she, so they did an emergency section, but as soon as they pulled our daughter out, my daughter, my wife actually stopped breathing and became unresponsive. Mm -hmm. Basically they had to resuscitate her. And when I was in the OR with her, I had no idea what was going on. I said, okay, Dr. Smith, you have to leave. Nobody told me what was going on for like two hours. I didn't know if she was alive or dead. And um... it was one of the most difficult times in my life. I sat in the waiting room. So I learned in the future that if somebody's going through that, that somebody should go and talk to the family or whatever, you know, give them updates. But I sat there for several hours wondering if my wife was alive or dead. And at that point, I, you know, I just realized that I could not, you know, it'd be very difficult for me to do this life without her because she truly is um, the best, best person I know. She just, you know, very kind and loving and just, I don't know. She just has that connection. Like I, you know, like, I don't know. It's just something to share. We share with, and she knows me and it's kind of funny because she's always accepted me. I mean, you know, even she learns more about my crazy family. She still accepts me for who I am. And she just has helped me. I feel complete. I feel not fractured. I feel, don't feel broken anymore. I feel complete because I have that connection with her in our, in our lives. And she's fully supported me. Now what we do, she actually comes with me when I go and speak. Um, she actually has been uh, taking college classes about uh, marital relationship and family relationships with the idea that someday we'd like to actually create a foundation to help people that are struggling like this and going through things too. Um, and that's part of why actually my book is part of the reason why I wrote my book is I actually plan on taking the proceeds, some of the proceeds and creating like a scholarship fund for kids that are just like I was to help them go to school because I think education is the key to overcoming those difficult circumstances. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. And um, so that's wonderful. I, let's definitely highlight that. Let the audience know that the proceeds to the book and that's going to be in the description. You can find his link and I'm all, I'll go ahead and put this up too. Uh, Chris's website is www.homeless2hopkins.com. And so we talk about when we start educating minds and how that really starts opening them up. And I also want to go back a little bit to, you know, the connection that you and your wife have, 
you're like this powerhouse couple. And so now you're starting to think of how can we start being a light together and doing something together? Yeah, because I think you're stronger if you do it together. There's a synergy or a strength together because yeah. she has obviously strengths that I don't have and vice versa. So, Yes, yes, of course. And okay, so tell me what tell, tell us all the things that you're doing right now. You've, you've got the book. You're, are, are you still, you're still active in medical care? Yes. And yes. how do you do it all? How are you balancing? And you have children yourself. Yes. Yeah. So I have, I actually yeah. have five daughters. I have five daughters. So, wow. um, <laughs> so my oldest, are two, the, my oldest three are actually now out of the house. Um, they're, they're in college or married and we still have two at home. And it's a challenge to find that balance in life to, mm -hmm. you know, um, but what I try to do is, you know, I just, a lot of times we, I try not to waste time. You know, I don't watch a lot of TV or things like that. I try to be productive more of my time to do things. And even if just rather than watch TV, my wife and go out, my wife and I go out and walk along the beach and watch the sunset, you know, it's much, you know, I think it's much more interaction. So I try to have balance though, you know, like make sure I spend time with those people that are important to me, like my wife and my children to really know and, and learn about what they're doing. But at the same time also to like work together with my wife to try to do good in the world as well, you know, to, um, and as my kids get older, hopefully do that, you know, work with them too, too. And some of my kids actually have done things like that too. Like my daughter helped um, raise funds for some homeless people, you know, like as a teenager to help, you know, for kids. So, um, but it's a real challenge though, honestly. And how, you know, I don't know, sometimes, I'm good at things, you know, you know, sometimes you do your best to juggle them all, but sometimes you don't, but yeah. So practicing medicine can be a challenge too. I still do that as well. So, but medicine's always been my, my kind of like school. It's the same thing. It's like my safe space. It's my, you know, yeah. it's my thing. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a passion. And, and you're, you, I mean, you have, you have many passions, it seems. Is there, is there any sort of tips or tricks you would leave with others when they do have a lot on their plate and they are trying to manage many different things where they have the normal day-to-day -day job and they're also working on their passion project? Do you have, and they have the family to take care of as well, as well as themselves. Do you have any things that you do day in and day out that really helps you with that? I think I also, you know, I think it's very important to take time for yourself too, when you're doing things. So it's important to take time to have some mindfulness or, you know, balance to take time to either practice mindfulness, you know, take a few minutes each day to just kind of relax and meditate or do whatever, whatever, whatever you use to kind of practice that mindfulness. But some other tips I have is I actually try to really find out what my kids are into. Like my daughter, one of my daughters really loved Minecraft. And so mm -hmm. rather than me, like, take a moment activities, I'd go play Minecraft with my daughter. And while we're playing, we'd have a great conversation and just try to really take it. My other daughter loves K-pop. And so I actually started listening to K-pop. And I really like things like BTS. <laughs> I like the group BTS. And, you know, I learned more about it. And it's still not hard to do. You just have to make little changes in your life. So, you know, like when I'm driving, I listen to her music. To kind of you know connect with her to find out you know what her and so then when I get home those few minutes I make sure like around the dinner table I think it's very important around the dinner table we put away our phones we put away our things and have like a conversation with our kids yeah. because that's really about a time in our lives when we can just take a minute and pause 
And the time for our kids is very quick. It goes very, very quickly. They grow up and they're out of the house before you know it. And you talk about finding balance. And I think that's what's important to realize that at times in your lives, you're going to focus on different things. Like when you have a baby, that baby takes a lot of time. But as they get older, they become a teenager or whatever, then they're not requiring as much time, but you can still spend some of your precious time with them. And the way I like to think of it is time is our most precious resource. When we spend that time, it's gone forever, however we spend it. And we can spend a binge watching Netflix or, like I said, I could play Minecraft with my daughter, you know, because yeah. now those memories, she has those memories. And I like to make memories rather than to buy things. So yeah. with our kids, we like to take them and do things rather than buy a lot of stuff, you know, so. Yeah. Well, and, and the playing the games and the Minecraft, that's a form of connecting, you know, it's not just being glued to the TV, although, you know, certain movies can be a connection aspect too, but I agree with you. It's, it's time. And, uh, I want to go back because this is really very wise of you to say, um, you know, the dinner table, there's, there's a lot of uh, research that's been done with dinners around the table at home with families. And that was something that I always did. I have three daughters, not as much compared to your five, but between Manly and I, we have seven. So we're, we're also familiar with big families, but the time around the dinner table was, was what we did. It, it was what we really tried to do every single night uh, and have a meal at home because it is, it's, it's a small amount of time when everybody's busy working and school, and then they want to be outdoors playing with their friends and you have your own things and you're taking care of households and doing all this stuff. That time is like when you actually can get everybody together. Right. And then you can talk about your thanks and what you were grateful for and what happened, what was the most exciting part of your day. So I'm glad that you mentioned that. Yeah. One thing actually my wife did that she started doing is she has our kids share. Okay. What are three things that happened today and how made you feel? And it could be good things or it could be things that make you feel bad too, you know, Mm. just to have some conversation to, you know, talk about your struggles or your successes. So it's a nice question to ask your kids an open-ended question. Tell me three things. And then we also share too, you know, three things that happened in our day. Yes, of course. Because when you lead by example, right. And I love that she brought that in that feeling aspect because you know, that's really teaching them how to feel and how to you know understand what they're experiencing. And as soon as we start doing that, it's so much easier to process and move past it instead of let it fester. You know, you talked about that a lot about when you were a kid and you didn't know how to express or feel because you didn't think that you could. So teaching that to our kids is a really great way. How did that make you feel? And the open-ended questions. I love that. Yeah. And and having them share their struggles because, you know, we often, you know, and how it's they're struggling and just letting validating those feelings of their feeling, I think is very important for kids. Yeah. So I want to bring in music because you answered a fun thing that I like to ask all of my guests. And I asked, share something that most people um, wouldn't know about you or a fun fact or a hobby, bucket list, what have you. And you said, I like a huge variety of music from Broadway musicals to hard rock. And I wanted to bring that in because, and you tell me what you think, but music is such a huge piece of how we 
we dive deep into our emotional, spiritual sides. And you talked about, I listen to my daughter's favorite music when we're driving because I, that's how I can connect with her. Yeah, exactly. I think music, music speaks to our souls. It's kind of a universal language that speaks yeah. to everyone. And I think part of it, I have this theory that when we're in the womb, you know, when we're in our mouth, you know, being as a fetus or, you know, developing as a baby, we hear the heartbeat of our mother 24 seven, the rhythm of our mother's heartbeat that entire time. And so if you look at music, most popular music, the beats is actually very close to a human heart rate. Mm -hmm. And so all of us are, you know, internalized that we have this notion of feeling and being able to feel emotion. And music has always been an expression of emotion. You know, as a kid, like I said, teenage had a hard time expressing, but I dealt with a lot of things through music. Oh, and yeah. It's, it's funny because my wife, likes broader musicals now and they think that she introduced them to me but actually the opposite is I actually introduced Broadway musicals to her so I loved like Les Miserables when I was a kid and Phantom of the Opera even a teenager so it's funny because I'd make my um friends we'd be listening to like Guns N' Roses you know I grew up in the 80s you know late 80s and 90s and but then I okay let's listen to Phantom of the Opera and it was like so like such a switch, such a you know, dynamic, but yeah. you know, it was, I love that just the whole range of music. I always thought it was really fun when they started uh, getting really technical with music and they started integrating the, the harder stuff with the, with the older stuff. And um, those are always fun. I have a comment that came in. I want to know about his meeting Depeche Mode at Seven Eleven. Okay. So my friends and I went to a concert up uh, up in uh, Park City, and on our way there, we just there was a, so we pulled up and there was a tour bus there. We're like, okay, yeah, what is this? So we um go we go in and it's Depeche Mode. They'd been they were just finishing up or coming back or going to their concert, and we're like, what in the world? You know, I guess they were getting some snacks for their ride. So we just ran into them in Seven Eleven just randomly. It's one of those random occurrences. You're like, I don't know how that happened, but you know, just it did. You know, it was pretty cool. They seem like really nice guys, you know, so. That's, uh, that's definitely one of Manly and my favorite bands. <laughs> so when we hear that, we're like, oh, that's so cool. So thank you so much, Chris, for sharing your wisdom and your stories and being vulnerable and sharing that with the world. Um, I'm curious, is there certain places that you are, are speaking? Are you intentional in getting out to certain areas uh, to build awareness? Yeah. So I just, so I recently spoke at the uh, mayor's ball in Palm beach County, Florida. It, it was to raise funds for homelessness and like probably 400 people were there and they do it every year. They raise funds for their homeless, the homeless coalition of Palm Beach County. So, and I've spoken at other organizations like that. And it's, it's very helpful. It's just nice because our perception of homelessness is not always what we think it is. People yeah. that are homeless can become a success. Some of those successful people actually were homeless. Like Chris Pratt. I don't know if people realize that Chris Pratt was actually homeless in Hawaii. Uh, Oprah Winfrey, Steve yeah. Harvey, these amazing people overcame it. And, to be able to share that, you know, this is what homeless, this is the potential that, you know, some homeless person has is, you know, right. very helpful and how we can help. But more importantly, I also share about what it feels like to be homeless, because that's kind of hard to describe unless you've experienced it. Yeah. And you go into detail with that, with your book. 
So again, I want to let the audience know that that's going to be left in the description. Most of you are going to be watching the replay, so you can find it there. Also, you can always leave a comment in the comment section and we will get back to you. Uh, you can reach Chris at homeless to Hopkins.com and uh, except my for my Gmail is also my Gmail is also the same homeless to Hopkins at gmail.com. So, okay. If somebody okay. wants to email me. Great. Great. Thank you. Uh, and you've written a children's book alongside that. So if you, if you know of people or you want to get this out, I, I just love that you have really created so many different avenues and unique ways of, of sharing this story and really going deeper on what that feels like. So thank you very much for sharing. Is there anything else that you want to leave the audience with today? No, just thank you. I think one thing I do want to leave is the idea that all of us have value. That's one thing I struggled with growing up. But all of us are unique and individuals, and each of us have a value, and we have an infinite value. And to just realize that every single person, no matter what you're struggling with, you have value and that you can have a better life. You just have to keep working. And when you do have a better life, reach back and try to help someone else who is struggling to kind of help them have a good life, you know, help work through their difficulties. And I just want to say thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. So. Oh, you're welcome. It is our pleasure. Thank you so much, Chris, for being on the Wellness Driven Life Show. And uh, again, to our audience, thank you so much for tuning in and goodbye for now.